0: I sometimes describe myself as a professional optimist. And what do I mean by that? I think I'm an optimist by nature, but certainly um, current events are discouraging. There's no doubt about that. But I also believe deeply that if you are not able to maintain a sense of hopefulness, you won't want to get out of bed in the morning. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, author of the book, Just Mercy, says that injustice prevails when hopelessness persists. If we want to maintain our motivation to take action, we have to maintain a sense of the possibility of change. Hopefulness is all about the possibility of change.
1: and welcome to this episode of An Ingenious You, the podcast where we speak with higher ed's most creative thinkers and doers. And I am so pleased to welcome to today's episode someone who hardly needs any introduction. Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum, President Emerita of Spelman College, is a clinical psychologist, widely known for her expertise on race relations and as a thought leader in higher education. For 13 years at Spelman, were marked by innovation and growth, and her visionary leadership was recognized in 2013 with the Carnegie Academic Leadership Award. She's the author of several books, is a sought-after speaker on the topics of racial identity development, the impact of race in the classroom, strategies for creating inclusive campus environments, and higher education leadership. Dr. Tatum has received many prestigious professional awards, including the Brock, International Prize in Education for her innovative leadership in the field, and the APA Award for Outstanding Lifetime Contributions to Psychology. We will include a link in the show notes to her full bio, but for now, Dr. Tatum, I am thrilled to welcome you to the Ingenious you community.
0: Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
1: Now, I want to jump right in because our listeners always like to know something about the background of our guests. And you have certainly had a very interesting professional life and one that recently has come full circle with you back at Mount Holyoke as interim president having served there previously as a faculty member, dean and acting president. So can you share something about your journey, your professional journey and the influences that have been most significant in shaping who you are today?
0: Sure, well, I want to go back to the very beginning, if I could. And by that, I mean, when I was born. Um, I was born in 1954, which is a very historic year in the world of higher education because it was the year of the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision, um, making clear that legalized, segregated education was unconstitutional. And at the time I was born, I was, my family was living in Tallahassee, Florida. My parents were both um, college graduates from Howard University, which is a historically black college, a uh, university uh, in Washington, DC. And my father had also earned a master's degree and was teaching in the art department as an art professor at Florida A&M University, also a historically black college or university, (HBCU). And so at the time of my birth, my dad was interested in getting his terminal degree, Uh, wanted a doctorate so he could continue to advance in higher education and was unable to do that in Tallahassee, even though Florida State University is also in Tallahassee, just across town from Florida A&M. But at that time, Florida State was a whites only institution. And because of the legalized segregation that had just been declared unconstitutional in 1954, um, it was still the case that Florida was slow like many Southern states were to um, comply with the law by desegregating those institutions. So what happened was the state of Florida had to do something. And what they did was pay my father's transportation out of the state. So um, my dad ended up traveling back and forth between Florida and Pennsylvania. He earned his doctorate at Penn State University Uh, And then once he completed that degree in 1957, my family moved to Massachusetts. My parents decided that they didn't want their kids, and I had an older brother who was about to start school, uh, they didn't want their kids to be part of that still segregated education system. And so my father started looking for new opportunities, found a job in Bridgewater, Massachusetts, Uh, which is a small town, but the home of Bridgewater State College, now known as Bridgewater State University. And he became the first African-American professor to teach at Bridgewater State. So I grew up in the town of Bridgewater, 30 miles outside of Boston. And I share that story to say that really the racial issues that I write about really were already in force in my life, right? Shaping where I grew up, all of that. Um, as a consequence of the time in which I was born. And my pursuit of higher education was very much in the family expectation. My father was a college professor. My mother was college educated. Um, Their parents had been college educated. There's a long history of education in my uh, family. And so I always thought I would go to college and I always expected to have a career of some sort, but I didn't expect to do the things that I'm doing right now. Um, I had planned to be a psychologist. I was very interested in psychology. I majored in psychology at Wesleyan University in Connecticut as an undergraduate, and then went on straight into a PhD program in clinical psychology with the idea of becoming a therapist. However, Along the way, I was given the opportunity to do some uh, teaching as a teaching assistant in graduate school. And I found that I kind of liked it. You know, I, I didn't think I'd be a college professor. I wasn't planning on that. but um but I did enjoy my teaching experience as a graduate student. And then, I uh, met and married my husband while I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, and followed him to a position he got at the University of California, Santa Barbara. While in Santa Barbara, I was, as they say, ABD, you know, all but dissertation, working on my dissertation there from the University of Michigan. But um, I was offered the opportunity to teach a class called Group Exploration of Racism. And I didn't really, I can't say that I really knew a lot about the content Beyond the fact that I had been studying the experiences of black families in the United States, and so of course knew a lot about the history as it relates to African Americans, and as a clinician, I had learned how to facilitate groups. I had been doing you know group counseling sessions uh, as part of my training. So when I was approached about teaching this course called Group Exploration of Racism, I thought I can do that <laughs> and so I took that um, opportunity and that course, which I taught very early in my career, I was 26 years old, not quite finished with my PhD. Um, It was such a powerful learning experience for my students and for me that it really shifted my interests. I did go on to become licensed as a clinical psychologist but it was pretty much through that teaching experience that I decided to focus on higher ed as a career In the classroom. One thing led to another and I found myself in a tenure track job at Mount Holyoke College where I worked as you said for a number of years and was promoted to full professor, chairman of the you know chair of my department and then eventually dean and finally acting president. Um, When the sitting president went on sabbatical she asked me to serve for six months as acting president and when she returned, by that time, I had been recruited to go to Spelman as president. So it was 20 years ago this year that I left Mount Holyoke to serve as president in Atlanta at Spelman College. And now, lo and behold, I'm back 20 years later, serving as interim president this year.
1: That is such a powerful story. Uh, it, your your story is one of coming full circle on many different levels. Um yes. And your entree into higher ed, given your family's your family's tradition. Um, what was your father's field, by the way? What what did he teach? My, my
0: dad was an artist, and he taught art education. In oh. fact, in the state of Massachusetts, if you meet um, an art teacher of a certain age, it's very likely that they studied with my father, Robert Daniel, at Bridgewater State.
1: Oh boy! Well, I. I can't imagine, You know, it. it I, I'm sure there must be moments when you step back and you marvel at how the dots have connected and brought absolutely.
0: you. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I'd like to dig a little bit deeper um, because you're, as I said at the outset, your expertise and uh, you are known um, for the work you've done. Uh, the writing, the speaking, the thought leadership in the area of racial identity development, racial relations, DEI, social justice, among other things. And based on what you've said, it's pretty obvious that your background um, and your preparation, particularly uh, in your field, uh, help to shape and influence your particular perspective and the lens that you you bring. Um, to looking at these at these areas and people who know you, um, you've probably heard this before, use the word wise to describe mm-hmm. uh, your perspective and the lens that you bring. So can you say a little bit more about how those things have shaped your perspective on race relations in particular? Sure, well, I, I, there's
0: two things. One, I wanna talk about the experience of growing up in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. You know, as I mentioned, my father was the first African-American uh, professor at Bridgewater State He started in 1958, so, you know, long time ago now, but, um, but I grew up in a town where I, there were very few Black families, and so I was often the only Black kid in my class. And um, there's something else that I didn't mention about me, but it is significant, and that is um, my mom was eventually a reading teacher but I was her first student, meaning that um, I learned to read at a very young age. So I was uh, a pretty proficient reader when I got to first grade. I didn't go to kindergarten. I went straight to first grade and I already knew how to read. And what that meant for me was that I um, skipped a grade. I went from first grade to third grade. And so I graduated at the age of 16 from high school. And I was often, the only black child in my class, but also often the youngest kid in my class. So I had the um, experience, but yet I had this sort of privileged background of, you know, being in the small town known as Dr. Daniel's daughter, right, you know, and then Mrs. Daniel's daughter, right, in terms of my mom becoming a teacher in the school district. And so I, um, I think I had a lot of insider and outsider experience at the same time, you know, sort of being able to see the world through the lens of an outsider as someone who in some ways didn't fit in to the wider community standing out as uh, different, but at the same time being an insider because I had all the privilege that was associated with educational um, access and uh, that being a, a major part of my background. So I think my um, writing about race is informed by both that insider and outsider view, you know, sort of trying to both understand the perspective of the dominant group and also having lived the experience of someone who was viewed through the lens of a minority category. And so all of that is to say um. I think it has helped me, and my background training as a clinician has helped me um, listen carefully to other people in terms of what they're saying, and and maybe to have some insight into what experiences have shaped them in the same way that I have reflected on some of my own. So that's been helpful, but I can't underestimate or or overstate. I can't overstate the power of what I learned from my students teaching my. Course on the psychology of racism, because um, you know, I had students write journals and we had a lot of small group discussions and a lot of opportunity to just really hear very important learnings from those students. And I think my writing has been very much informed by what my students have taught me.
1: Those influences are evident uh, in your writing, indeed. I, I yeah, I'm thinking in particular of the book that. I would imagine maybe one of the most widely read of all of the books that you have uh, written. And that is the original was 2007. Why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria and other conversations about race, which you then went on to revise and update in a 2017 20th anniversary edition. And I have always wanted to ask you uh, where the title comes from and uh, the inspiration for uh, the ideas in the book, and I, you've, you've given us a good segue into that already. I think sure. Well,
0: actually, the first version of the book um, came out in 1997, oh. and I was at the time teaching at Mount Holyoke and um, about to go on sabbatical. So I, I wrote most of the book while on sabbatical from Mount Holyoke uh, in 1996, and then it was published in 1997 but really the motivation for writing it had to do with my experience teaching the psychology of racism class and having my students say to me why didn't we talk about this in high school why didn't we have these conversations in middle school why did we have to wait till we were in your class as juniors or seniors in college to have these meaningful conversations about this very important social issue and I had been asking that question myself, and what I discovered was that there were a lot of teachers who said, K-12 through teachers, who said, we just don't know how to have these conversations. We are hesitant to go down that path because we don't know how to facilitate the conversations or don't want to cause conflict. There was a lot of anxiety about that. And I decided that it would be good for me to do workshops for educators to try to help them. Um, learned some of the things that I was learning and had learned and was writing about relative to understanding student identity development, how that plays itself out in the classroom, how those conversations can be shaped to facilitate positive development. And because those workshops were very popular, I found myself doing more and more of them to the point where I was wearing myself out. And so <laughs> I thought, if you could write some of it down, you know, if you could put it in a book, people could read it, you wouldn't have to go do those workshops. Um, what I learned, of course, was after I wrote it down, that they still wanted you to come and do the workshop. <laughs> but, um, but the title just came to me. I mean, I, I actually had been doing all these workshops, as I said, and one of the workshops I had done was in a school district out in Illinois. And at the time that I was doing the workshop, I had a cold and probably should have stayed home, but was determined to fulfill my commitment and uh, talked all day. And at the end of the day had laryngitis and wow. so came home voiceless. But um, right around that time in my voiceless state, I decided to participate in a retreat. I had been taking classes in my sp- little of my spare time, but in my spare time, I'd been taking classes at Hartford Seminary. And I had learned about um, a retreat center where there was going to be a silent retreat. And I thought, I'd like to experience a silent retreat. And I've got laryngitis. I can't talk anyway. (laughs) Um, And so I went on this silent retreat. And while I was on retreat, I was, of course, reflecting and journaling and doing the things you do on a retreat like that. And the idea of the book just came to me and the title, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, was inspired by the fact that this was a question that I was often asked when I was doing those workshops in school districts that were multiracial. It was inevitable that somebody at the school would ask, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? And Often that question was asked in a way to suggest that they wish they could make them stop. Like, you know, is this a problem? Why are they doing that? And I wanted to not only answer that question but other questions that people had related to an understanding of adolescent racial identity and um, the ways in which racism impacts all of us and how we think about ourselves and each other.
1: You're, You're not only wise, you're also divinely inspired I think, <laughs> in terms of how the title came about. I, you know, what I, just a follow-up question, you know, in terms of having been asked that question so many times, what, what is your thinking about what's behind that question? Because oftentimes when you hear that question, you think that somebody thinks there must be something wrong. Yes.
0: Well, yes. often um, in my experience, often the question was being asked in the context of a school that had been, uh, maybe participating in a school desegregation effort. um, Maybe, for example, there are a number of um, schools in the greater Boston area, suburban communities that participate in what's called the METCO program. And this is a voluntary desegregation program that goes back 50 years probably, um, to the 70s for sure, when Black students from Boston were being given the opportunity to take a bus into a suburban community like Wellesley or Newton or Sudbury or any number of communities surrounding Boston. And those towns, typically very um, homogeneous in their population at that time, maybe more diverse today, but then um, largely white. And so the Black kids who were coming into the school district, typically were coming from Boston. Some occasionally lived in the town, but mostly they were coming from someplace else. And given that the school was participating in a program intended to quote desegregate, um, walking into a cafeteria and seeing those kids from Boston, the black students sitting together, not necessarily um, mixing in with the white kids made some people feel like well is our program working it it appears that we're just replicating segregation so for for some people that was part of it Mm -hmm. I think for others sometimes there's a kind of anxiety and maybe maybe these things are not mutually exclusive but um, there's a lot of research that tells us that white people in particular are sometimes a little bit afraid of black people you know and that when they, and maybe not even consciously so, but if they walk into a room and see a bunch of black people sitting together, it it generates some internal anxiety that maybe isn't even conscious, but may be part of wondering like, what's going on over there? Is that something I need to be concerned about?
2: These are difficult days for higher education. Even before the pandemic, higher education was in a free fall. Colleges are closing or merging at an ever increasing rate. Leaders are facing challenges from every direction. No wonder so many experts are calling for a new kind of leadership. The Bay Path University Doctorate in Educational Leadership with a concentration in higher education and organizational studies was created for just this time and purpose. We ask seasoned leaders for their input and then design the program in response. The EDD program prepares students to become self-aware, effective, adaptive leaders who know exactly how to leverage their institution's strengths and potential to create lasting change and enduring success. All coursework is online and students receive an abundance of personalized support from peers and from our expert faculty. And through the dissertation and practice, you will learn how to plan and implement a change process to address a real organizational problem. If you want to become a catalyst for change in higher education and have an impact, take the next step by visiting our website at baypath.edu.
1: Uh, Let let me pivot here and ask you um, for your thoughts about how race relations on college campuses have changed since, particularly since you first became involved in DEI work and thinking back to the updating of your book since 2017, a lot has happened uh, in our country since then. So what, what are your thoughts about, about that? You know, it's so
0: interesting uh, to reflect on what's happened over the last 20, now almost 30 years, actually, since I was teaching and writing about um, these issues. And one of the, and in some ways it's hard to, it's, I wouldn't describe it as a linear process, you know, like it was one way now then, and it's this way now, because there's been kind of ups and downs in that time period. So there have been times when um, there was more open dialogue, maybe less defensiveness. We're living in a moment when I think it's very hard for people to have these conversations because um, our society as a whole has become more polarized, um, politically, ideologically, we're at a time where people are feeling quite fractured as a society. And, um, and you see some of that playing itself out on college campuses as well. On the one hand, the, most campuses are much more diverse in terms of their student body than they were 20 or 30 years ago. However, the students who are arriving are likely to be coming from schools that are more segregated today, particularly if they went to public school, that are more segregated today than they were in the early 80s. So the irony of that is that they're coming into diverse environments with less experience, less day-to-day interaction with students different from themselves than they might've had 20 years ago. As a consequence, I think there's still awkwardness Um, some hesitation to engage um, across lines of difference. But on the other hand, there is a general, um, I think generally speaking, people would say there's more acceptance of difference. You know, we see more images of uh, people of color on television, in movies. And yet, even sometimes when um, characters are um, portrayed as uh, people of color that we're used to seeing as white characters. You know, there's chatter about that on Twitter, like, does this make sense? Uh, you know, there's, there's certain cultural assumptions that are being disrupted um, in contemporary society that we hear about and read about and students talk about. So I think the opportunity for improving uh, social relations is available because of the diversity on our campuses, but there's still a need for some scaffolding to help build the capacity to to really feel competent in one's ability to engage with people different for themselves.
1: Yeah, well, I'm gonna come back and ask you uh, for more details in that regard, because I know in your writing, you've given some wonderful guidance for faculty and for leaders. But before I do that, I'm I'm just curious, Um, you're a a higher ed leader, um, been a president, uh, you've been in higher ed almost your entire professional life. What accountability or what responsibility, perhaps is a better word, do you think that higher ed has today in in doing more, in breaking down barriers across race?
0: I think there's a real opportunity and that higher ed um, college and university leaders should really seize that opportunity. In some ways, it may be the last best opportunity to really break down some of the barriers in our society because we are at a time when there is an increasing cross-section of society on our campuses. We have more first gen students who are going to college who are coming maybe from lower income backgrounds. It's not just for a privileged elite. Um, at, many institutions that diversity, um, not just racial diversity, but economic diversity, religious diversity, um, diversity in terms of gender and sexual orientation or identity, all of the ways that people can vary from one another um, are being represented and made visible on our campus. And that creates a real learning opportunity that most students haven't had before and may not have again. In terms of their own personal development, and so if we miss this opportunity, we really won't uh, easily be able to recapture this kind of learning context. So, um, so I think that college and u- college and university leaders should really be thinking about how do we ensure that the young people we are educating are prepared. For a truly diverse society, that they are developing the leadership capacity to be able to connect across lines of difference, because that is really the 21st century skill we're going to all need.
1: What are some specifics? If you were speaking to a room full of presidents and provosts, uh, what are some specifics that you would share with them in terms of concrete things that they can do, things that, sh- that should be on their radar? Yeah.
0: Um, One of the things that I would say has to do with curriculum and um, and often the um, diversity initiatives, the um, efforts around student development are centered in the division of student life. Right. You know, the student affairs folks are working hard to try to bring people together and create programming. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's important what happens outside the classroom is very important. But I think we're not perhaps paying enough attention to what's happening inside the classroom, that there's a real opportunity um, where students are brought together to learn specific content, but can do that in doing small group work. They have the opportunity to engage with each other in discussion and dialogue um, in ways that would really be beneficial, the research suggests that when they have those kinds of conversations, it really benefits them in terms of their own um, cognitive development, not as well as their social development. And yet, I know that there are many faculty members who are uncertain, not unlike the K through 12 teachers I talked about earlier, uncertain about how to facilitate those kinds of conversations. So there is a program that I talk a lot about in my writing and I think it's worth lifting up here. And that is what's referred to as intergroup dialogue as a strategy. Um, The University of Michigan is perhaps best known as the um, birthplace of intergroup dialogue programs where students were brought together across lines of difference very intentionally given the opportunity in a structured classroom setting to talk about important social issues across lines of difference over the period of eight weeks, sometimes longer, and get credit for that and have those conversations facilitated by faculty members, by uh, graduate student teaching assistants. And increasingly, undergraduates themselves are learning how to be facilitators um, so that that's a real skill they can take with them when they leave the university but the intergroup dialogue programs that have been put into place at michigan have spread to other places i am coming to you from mount holyoke where we have a fledgling intergroup dialogue program we hope to enhance it build it out um the university of massachusetts just up the road has a very well-developed intergroup dialogue program under the umbrella of its uh school of education social justice curriculum There are um, institutions across the country that are building this kind of curricular intervention into their credit-bearing programs. And I think it is a really um, wonderful way to deepen students' understanding of the social context in which they're living and the ways in which they have the opportunity to build bridges themselves as, um, as they learn more and more.
1: Is is there anything else in terms of the role of faculty? Because you know, particularly on a commuter campus, um, the faculty member is oftentimes the main point of contact that students have when they come to the campus. They they oftentimes, it, it's from the parking lot to the classroom back to the parking lot or the bus stop. And yes. I, I'm not sure faculty always realize just how critical their presence is. Um, so is, is there anything else that, you would recommend? Absolutely,
0: and I want to take this opportunity to plug a new book um, that I have just finished reading and that I highly recommend. And the title of the book is Belonging. Um, Belonging, subtitle is The Science of Creating Connections and Bridging Divides. Mm -hmm. The author's name is Jeffrey Cohen, very distinguished social psychologist at Stanford University, but the book, that the central title, Belonging, talks about, first of all, how important belonging is to academic performance, right? Mm-hmm. We know that students are much more likely to persist to graduation if they feel like they belong in a learning environment, if they feel like this is a place that is affirming to me. And um, what I really appreciate about uh, Professor Cohen's book is that it's full of examples of small things that faculty members can do to strengthen a student's sense of belonging and self-confidence in the learning environment. He talks about, um, Jeff Cohen writes about what he calls the three T's, tailored, targeted, and timely. And what he means by that is, is that a tailored intervention that is targeted to the right person and occurs at the right time can completely change the trajectory of that student's learning experience. For example, when you get your first paper back from that English composition class, or whatever it might be, maybe it's the first lab report in your organic chemistry class, you know, something that is at high stakes for you, something that you care about and yet maybe you didn't perform so well. So you get that paper back and it's covered with red marks. That could be a moment of despair. It could be a moment where you say to yourself, I don't belong in this major, I don't belong in this class, maybe I don't belong at this school. But let's imagine that the faculty member who graded that paper wrote at the top of it, I know you have what it takes to be successful. I have given you a lot of feedback here because I want you to be able to really understand the content because I know you can do it. The student who gets that paper back is still going to be dismayed maybe by the low grade or all the red marks. But fundamentally, they're going to hear, this professor believes in me. This professor has given me all these red marks because they think I'm worth the effort. I can do this. And that, maybe it took two minutes longer to write that sentence than what that professor might otherwise have done. But those two minutes are gonna turn into a very motivated student who's gonna be working much harder to deliver so as to not let that professor's faith in them be for naught.
1: If you had a magic wand, I'm gonna ask you to imagine here for a moment, um, you And you could do anything to educate students to be more critically conscious and equity-minded. Where would you start? Uh, what, what would you do? You know, if I had a magic wand, I think what I would do would be
0: deepen all of our students' understanding of US history, maybe world history, but thinking specifically about the United States. I think that the fact that our students are so, generally speaking, um, the word that comes to mind is misinformed, but it's not even misinformed. I think it's just uninformed, Uh, so uninformed about the history of our nation and how it came to be. And I am troubled by the current push to limit the history that is being taught in states across the nation because. We know that um, a lot of the inequities in our society have their roots in that history. If you don't know that history, you don't understand that. And if you don't understand that, then you're likely to um, have a faulty explanation for why things are the way they are. It might be an explanation like, you know, that student isn't doing well in school because they don't care about their education, not knowing the history of the struggle for education within that student's community and that student's family perhaps, not knowing the ways in which even something like social security was shaped and applied in ways that benefited, for example, white communities and disenfranchised Particularly African American workers in the South. Um, When those, to just use as an example, when the Social Security um, policies were being put into place in the 30s, exceptions were made. You weren't eligible for Social Security if you were a domestic worker, you weren't eligible for Social Security if you were an agricultural worker let's think about who those domestic workers and those agricultural workers were particularly in southern states and that tells you a lot about one source of the economic disparities we see today you know if you weren't able to participate in social security how then did you take care of elderly people in your family you know if you weren't able to participate in the social safety nets what did you do when Um, hard times befell your family. Um, All of these things are part of our national history. And if you don't know it, you um, have typically faulty reasoning around how um, the systemic nature of racism has functioned. And I think knowing that history is very empowering to those. It's not always happy history, but it's empowering to know it and understand how we got where we are today. I'm a psychologist, I just, as you know, I'm a psychologist, but I often say what psychologists and historians have in common is that we both understand that what happened in the past matters.
1: I want to switch gears again and uh, go back to your book. Um, And one of the things that I really appreciated about your, the 2017 revised book is that you ended it on an optimistic note. Um, wherein you described, you discussed encouraging projects. And we've talked a little bit about um, how there, there does seem to be um, some greater openness in the the younger generations to, to connect across lines of difference. But I, I'm wondering if your optimism, you know, as you, again, look at where we are and you look to the future, um, if your optimism has been challenged or moderated at all um, by events, or are you still as optimistic? Well, let me say this about my optimism. And that,
0: excuse me, I I sometimes describe myself as a professional optimist. And what do I mean by that? I, I, you know, I think I'm an optimist by nature, but certainly um, current events are discouraging. There's no doubt about that. But I also believe deeply that if you are not able to maintain a sense of hopefulness, you won't want to get out of bed in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. You know, um, Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative, author of the book, Just Mercy, Mm -hmm. says that injustice prevails when hopelessness persists, Mm -hmm. right? So if we want to maintain our motivation to take action, we have to maintain a sense of the possibility of change, right? Hopefulness is all about the possibility of change. And if we believe change is possible, then we will take action to try to make it happen. If we have given up on that possibility, then you know, then we become passive and just sit by the wayside and watch, right? So I think it's important to maintain that sense of possibility, and I work at it. I often describe um, hope as a discipline, which means that it's important to look for signs of progress. Uh, the last chapter in the 2017 version of my book refers is titled Signs, Sights, um, signs of Hope, Sites of Progress right? Um, Where do we see people coming together, working together toward the common good? Where do we see signs that change is taking place? And if we are paying attention, we will find those signs. They're in every community. Um, It may not make the front page of the newspaper, so you have to kind of dig it out and lift it up. Um, I think that uh, as we know, people often say, if it bleeds, it leads, right? The bad news is the story that gets that attention. But when people are working cooperatively together across lines of difference to bring about change in their community, that story doesn't always make front page headlines. But if we pay attention and amplify those stories, we will see that um, there are folks committed to increasing, increasing, uh, the possibility for all of us to thrive together.
1: I like that a lot. Practicing the discipline or learning the discipline of hope, yes, um, which is something we can all do. So absolutely, yeah. So thank you for that. So now we're we've come to the end of our time. We have a signature question that we'd like to ask of all of our guests, and so I'm going to ask you. As you look to the future of higher education more broadly, what is top of mind for you? What do you think needs to be on uh, everyone's radar and what's on your radar? Well, I
0: think what needs to be on all of our radar is um, the question of affordability, right? Mm -hmm. We know that there are lots of young people who want an education, would benefit from an education, and we need to have educated. We collectively, as a society, need the next generation to be well educated in order for them to take their place as leaders, as problem solvers in our community. And yet um, the cost of education, as it is currently structured as a private good um, that people pay for themselves for the most part, Um, Pell Grants and student loans notwithstanding, um, means that not everyone who would benefit and be able to contribute as a result of education is gonna have access to it. I'm aware that in other countries, European countries, for example, um, a lot of them offer higher education for free. Um, And why is it that we don't do that in the United States? I think it's really about our society needing to make a decision about whether we are willing to make the investment we need to make in the future as represented by this next generation and the generations coming behind them of students. There's plenty of talent, but not all of those talented folks have the resources they need to be able to um, access the
1: education that we provide. And that's going to be a problem for all of us indeed and that's a that's a, a very good note to to end on so is there anything i didn't ask you that you were hoping i would ask you or that you would like to to add as an ending ending well note? I,
0: I simply want to thank you uh for this podcast this opportunity to share some ideas and some conversation with you it's been an honor to be uh, part of your series so thank you
1: Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of An Ingenious You. This is Melissa morris Solson, your host. We are very excited about our season four conversations. I encourage you to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss out on a single episode. And if you like what you hear, be sure to rate us and let your friends and colleagues know so that they too can join the Ingenious You community. I invite you to visit our website for the Center for Higher Education Leadership and Innovative Practice at baypath.edu slash chelip, where you will find information about our monthly free leading-edge thinking and higher education webinars, as well as our just launched YouTube channel, where you'll find full video interviews with our most highly-rated conversations from previous seasons. And while on this site, you can subscribe so you don't miss out on the release of new content and upcoming webinars. That's all for now. Thanks so very much for listening.